Welcome to building a hundred million pound business in public. Four years ago, I was having lunch with my friend Logan when we half joked about racing to a hundred million. And it's always stayed in my head. What does it take to build a hundred million pound business? On this podcast, I ask my network and speak to VCs, founders, DNI specialists, marketeers, and more to share their top tips. Some have made it, some are on the way, and all have a story to tell. So I'm delighted to welcome Mark Whitcroft to the podcast today. Mark is a founding partner of Illuminate Financial, which is a VC that specializes in fintech and enterprise software. He's also the first person who ever used the word fintech with me. Welcome, Mark. Thanks, James. Thanks. Well, perhaps we might start by, yeah, talk, talking a bit about you. Yeah, sure. So uh, professionally, uh, as you mentioned, I, I, I helped set up a business about seven, seven and a half years ago. Um, and we're a venture firm. So we back entrepreneurs that are building products that are servicing the financial services sector. Those are either enterprise fintech products or enterprise software, which has a potentially broader use case, but they particularly want to target financial services. Um, we're a team of 14 people. Uh, we're based around the globe. We're on a second fund. Um, second fund is about $100 million, backed by financial institutions like Barclays, JP Morgan, and financial corporates like Deutsche Börse Group, who are in the German stock exchange, IHS Market, who are going through a merger with S&P Global at the moment, and are a NASDAQ-listed uh, data and information company. And we've invested in 25 companies and uh, over the last seven years. Uh, they service over a 1,000 different financial institutions globally. Um, uh, they're all at different stages of growth. Uh, we work very closely with all, all these founders as, as they think about uh, sort of building these businesses up and sort of taking them to the next stage, right through from sort of growth stage through to exit. And uh, personally, uh, I, I'm married to Crystal and I have a little boy called Oliver and we've got a little girl on the way as well. Um, so that's me. Wow. Busy. Busy. Yeah, a lot so of times. It sounds like you've, I mean, not only, well, we can talk today about getting to 100 million for your portfolio companies, but actually with raising a fund of 100 million, it could have illuminated as kind of a 100 million company in a way too, which is quite cool. Yeah, well, I mean, we are managing other people's money and our own. Uh, but but yeah, look, I mean, I think overall, the idea is to turn that 100 into significantly more uh, as we look at that using that sort of growth capital for for other businesses. Hmm. And, and, and in your portfolio, you've got examples of businesses that have got to the 100 million as well? Yeah, and beyond, right? I mean, I think none of this stuff is is static. And also, I think importantly, none of this stuff is linear, right? Uh, there are businesses that will have brilliant six months or years, and, and then they could have a few quarters where there's some serious soul searching about what's happening. Uh, but but some examples of, of businesses that are sort of going on to do, to, to do great things. We recently uh, exited a business called Curve, uh, which has been bought by uh, PayPal. They were in the crypto custody space. Uh, we also have companies like Privatar, uh, which is a pioneer in the data privacy space. They've gone on to raise significant capital um, from the likes of uh, Axel, Salesforce, uh, and uh, Wolberg Pincus uh, in their latest round. Mm. And well, I'm probably jumping ahead thing, but from, from what you're from what you're seeing across those companies which are getting to 100 million, is there anything? Anything you're seeing in common? Yeah, I mean, it's there's definitely parallels 
um, in terms of best practice, uh, and and we, you know, we uh, as a as a business of of building out our platform uh, more more readily. We've recently hired a lady called Rosie to to run um, our platform uh, build out and our community, and a lot of that is around not only servicing, you know, so our investors and and, and think, but but also the entrepreneurs that we back and, and sharing best practice. So we often run events um, that are. Uh, about sharing best practice, uh, either getting experts in or, or having the CEOs or the CROs or the CTOs having topics to discuss amongst themselves. So we, we've done that um, around sales. Uh, we recently um, worked with Frank, uh, Professor Frank Sebrides at Harvard Business School, who's one of the, I think, world leaders on enterprise software sales. Um, so we had a session with our portfolio companies with him. We've also done it with product leaders. Uh, we're going to be doing one around marketing upcoming as well. So undoubtedly, there is best practice. Um, I think when you are an early stage investor, it, it, it all rolls back to team. Mm. Uh, team for me is, is a number of different things. One is, are, are there alignments within that team which are going to allow them to, to ride the wave of of building an early stage business because you know it really is like this and people are going to be under stress under pressure and do they have the mutual respect value set um complementary skill set that allow them to sort of ride through that those rough times together um uh, one thing that i think i've definitely learned over the period of illuminate is the ability for people to hire world-class people that work for them um mm. and arguably people who are better than them but are working for you because you got there before they did. And I think that's definitely something we've tried to emulate at Illuminate in terms of the people that, that we've brought in along the journey. Uh, so, so look, I mean, it, it ultimately all rolls back down to team. And, and over time, it's can you systemize uh, and put structure uh, around processes um, to, to really help you move from sort of high uncertainty around decision making through to more data and analytical decision making as you go because the more you can sort of move towards that over time that is hugely helpful and i think in b2c or consumer-based technology where you have a lot of data around interactions uh and there's a lot of uh you know data that companies can pull around smartphones they can try different marketing techniques they can sort of get a lot of understanding around sort of a b testing in enterprise software you don't have that luxury so much because the sales cycles are so long the signals might be wrong product market fit can can take a long time and you can also be led down paths that aren't necessarily the right for scaling so um you know those early years of building these companies until you have a significant sample set of clients and uh the right people in place to sort of augment all that feedback over time is huge. And, you know, I think these businesses, unlike other businesses like service businesses, you have two significant different components, right? You've got the technology piece to the business, and then you've got the sort of commercial piece and the, and the customer facing piece. So, you know, it, it highly complex, organic beasts, these businesses that there's always something uh, to deal with. So, um, it's a long-winded way of answering your question, but I think it, it often comes back to, you know, we'll talk a little bit about decision-making later, but it comes back to who are the people at the top of the firm, uh, who are the people who sort of started the firm, who are the people leading the firm, and do they have the sensitivities to really understand what they're good at and what they're not good at, uh, and, uh, and, and 
the ability to get people in and behind them um, that, that, that make up for those weaknesses. So what I'm really hearing there is this kind of idea of like, you want to get to a position where you are making decisions with data away from uncertainty, but in the early stages, particularly when it comes to enterprise software or long anything with a longer cycle, you just don't have that data in the early stage. So what you do need to rely on is the quality of the founding team and then the quality of the team that they build underneath them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, uh, no business works unless it's got clients who are willing to pay for it, uh, to pay for your product. So really understanding, you know, who your client is and you get huge and significant false signals there as well, if you're not careful. And who has a budget and who's the decider of that budget with which they, uh, they, they can. And then you go into all the nuances of is it a must-have product or is it a nice-to-have product? Mm. Are you are you selling into white space or are you selling into a rip and replace? So you know, there's there's definitely a lot that happens with this stuff, and you know, I think without sort of exception, I, I sort of say think, hope, believe when I when I think about the sales cycle uh, in enterprise software. You think you're going to close a client at a certain time, it gets slightly delayed. You hope that you're going to close it on the second deadline, <laughs> um, which you don't, but you believe you're going to close it on the third deadline uh, and you may or may not because this <laughs> stuff always takes longer than, than, than you think. So think, hope, believe is, is how I often think about sales cycles and enterprise software. Well, it's the second first thing. First was FinTech and now think, hope, believe. I haven't heard that before, but I really like it. And you mentioned there about sort of some false signals. So like when people are going out and they, and they think they've identified their key client, which are clearly important, you say, if people aren't going to aren't give you money for what you're doing, you're not going to be around for very long. What, what, what are some of those false signals? Sure. I mean, it's, uh, well, I think uh, one is people being prepared to take a meeting and talk about what you're doing or people wanting to see a demo of a product mm. doesn't, doesn't translate to, I am prepared to pay for this or I have the ability to pay for this or I'm interested in paying for this in the near term. So, you know, really the, you know, sales, the art of question asking, the art of listening, the art of articulating your value proposition based on what you've heard the real pain points are, are things that, you know, sales training is something that some firms do, some firms don't. There's also a lot of bad sales training out there. So making sure you're really sort of training your salespeople in the right way, not even salespeople. When it's an early business, by the way, it tends to be founder-led uh, mm. in terms of sales. So, you know, really defining what are your sort of core questions that you need to get out of your meeting. How long do you have the meeting for? So there's nothing worse than getting to an end of meeting and not covering what you wanted to. Um, Leaning on relationships that are established or, or, or trying to build new ones, which in COVID times is, is really hard, as we know, right? You can't get in, in rooms with people. And then when you start to think about the actual sort of, you know, you've, you've got your articulation of your product and, and, and what the client might buy, then trying to push that through to an actual sales process and, you know, what are the hurdles on each of the, the steps to get this through, all challenging, right? Even mm. when we think about you've got your, business sponsor you've got your um you've got your budget signed off you've got everybody and it's never one person by the way you've got multiple people who've agreed to this uh political decision making in this large organization and then 
sort of when you get to the end of that, you then have to deal with procurement and vendor onboarding, which, by the way, you know, I've seen take uh, over a year. Um, wow. So, so none of this stuff is easy, which means the bar of entry is high, which means once you're in it, like building those businesses, but once you're in, it's not all negative, by the way, once you're in, <laughs> it's really hard to get you out. So mm. that is why the multiples on these businesses from a public markets perspective, but also from a private markets perspective are, are meaningful because this stuff is, uh, this is, this stuff is sticky. Well, it's interesting because like, I mean, so like that Eric Reese talk that we went to all those years ago. So the whole build, measure, learn. And he always said, opinions are worthless. It's all about people giving you money. People giving you money is the only thing that truly validates your, your product. And that must be very tricky in the enterprise bit because from what you're saying, it can be, well, maybe a year to make a decision and then a year to onboard or just very long periods. So there is that, there is, you're not getting that financial validation anytime soon. Yeah, most most definitely. And then you have this whole nuance of when you have got somebody to pay for it, trying to define what the willingness to pay of the client is. You know, WIP is something that plenty of books have been written about. There's science around it. And as we often know, with theory translating to practice, is often there's a there's a much bigger leap there than than theory would like to would would like to recognize. Um, so how do you ensure that you are really testing the upper limits of where the client is prepared to pay? And then not only that, that might be product one, but as you think about your own business product roadmap, are you going, you know, laterally or are you going up and down in terms of workflows? Are you building adjacent or are you, uh, or are you going deeper into the client? So all of those things matter. And, you know, often with enterprise sales, you almost want to be in and whilst you might have undersold it to start off with, it's like, what can X turn into over time? How many times X can you, can you build out over a three to five year period with a client? And that's often how we think about investments uh, that, that we are already in and how we think about positioning going forward uh, with, with the business leaders, but also when we're looking at investments as well. It's like, okay, these are, these are the contracts they've signed, but what do we think with with our own network, which is investors, and you know we're under NDA with ten financial institutions. These are all things that allow us to to validate. So, you know, here we're talking about as a young business, you know, the businesses we're investing in being able to validate their pricing. We have exactly the same as investor as well. So, you know, we mm. are trying to use our significant touch points throughout all of these organisations, different business lines, different departments. Uh, different levels of seniority, you know, some in the C-suite, some in business leaders, some are actually functional leaders as well, um, or, or, or people who sort of do the day-to-day. -day. All of those things matter in terms of trying to get more validation around your points or the things you're trying to explore. Yeah, well, I, I can see how that's challenged as, a, as, a, as an investor as well, because you put out as many data points as you'd like at that point. It's still quite gut-feely at, at the stage that you're investing. Yeah, and then there's a balance here, right? Because you know, uh, you know, what is what is structured, analytical, data-driven thought process, and uh, within that point as well, what are the unknown unknowns, uh, which I think is something people often don't really think about. And then, you know, what is your gut telling you? You know, again, there's like a, 
a lot of books written on sort of gut investing, and there are brilliant investors out there who will only based on 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 gut, right? Which has you know thousands of years or tens of thousands of years of uh, of, of biological development that, that has something there to it as well. So you know it's but with all of this again, it comes down to people. Like you know, for the way that I often speak about it with with my team is you know we're investing in people and this is a business marriage like we will be working with these people potentially 10 years and beyond so do we have the ability to when things do break down either on their side or on our side or for whatever reason do we have the ability to sort of mend those relationships use that experience to, to make the relationship stronger um because both sides will go through tough times mm, i really like that that probably leads nicely on to the sort of the, the top tip then in terms of if there's from, from these experiences of dealing with lots of different businesses since you've been operational, what's sort of the one thing you advise people to either do or not to do on their way to that 100 million? Sure. For me, it, it, I wish people spent more time thinking about how they make decisions. So it, it is easier in a world where we we can be data driven, where we can be analytical, where we can make decisions based on that stuff. The problem is often with businesses, you're operating in highly uncertain environments. And I think, you know, COVID for all of us globally has touched everybody with a highly uncertain environment, right? And what happens with high uncertainty is you often get false indicators. And there's also a greater number of unknown unknowns and also known unknowns that may be there when you compare it to something where you have a, a lot more data and you can be a lot more analytical about this discussion. So really, really thinking about what your unknown unknowns are and what your known unknowns are when you are making those decisions. Because actually, there's a lot of stuff when it comes to decision making, which can lead to false indicators and poor decision making that people don't often think about. And there's a there's a again a ton of research in this space. And and the thing I'd say is actually you don't need to take my my word for it because I think most advice is poor, right? Uh, and, and not that the people are giving it aren't hugely successful in terms of how they think about giving advice, but there's there's a whole bunch of stuff out there that one evidence is anecdotal. Secondly, you know, research doesn't translate necessarily into different contexts, uh, different contexts. Uh, failures are often silent. People don't necessarily talk about what, what went wrong. They only talk about what went right. And when they talk about what went right, there's often a highly selective memory to uh, what happened at the time. There's significant bias that might have played out in terms of their own impact on that. And also, storytelling is often highly selective because you're telling a story which will be captivating for people and, you know, has people on tender hooks, which actually might not be what happened, but it's a better story, right? And, you know, Hollywood and, 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 our, and our appreciation of everything that we look at from an online digital media perspective, it's all about capturing people's attention, right? Same in the media today. So often that... People need to be really careful about how they think about listening to advice uh, and and also how they think about their own decision making based on their own scenarios as well. So, you know, biases, what biases might be playing out in terms of decision making. 
two great sources of, of intel that, that I would sort of drive people towards on this topic. Dr. Emra um, Sawyer, Harvard-based um, uh, academic, brilliant when it comes to thinking about behavioral decision-making uh, and ev evidence-based decision-making. He's written two very, very well-read articles in Harvard Business Review, Stop Reading Lists of Things Successful People Do and Fooled by Experience, right? Um, highly recommend those reads. He's also got a brilliant book out. The other example I'd give is uh, a guy called Hans Rosling, who's written a book called Factfulness, 10 Reasons Why we're wrong about the world, right? And there's yeah, uh, there's a great survey in this, which I think is about 30 to 50 questions. And he's done this survey to everybody from the, you know, global leaders of the G7, you know, the World Economic Forum. He's done it at a bunch of conferences I've done. And without exception, most people, when they are asked questions about the world, when they, you know, these are questions about economics, you know, reading stats, uh, you know, birth rates, um, all, all of these kind of things, without exception, people always score less than 20% on this. So there's an underlying, and, and you know, his, I, I've mentioned his book again, I think a brilliant way to really internalize and think about your own decision-making approach. And, and what I love about this topic is, is this is not only applicable in your professional life, this is applicable in your personal life and every aspect of your life. So if people can really think about, um, you know, how they think about making decisions, this can have an outsized impact on, on success in every aspect of their life. Mm. That's, that's really useful. So the two there, like one is just look at how you're making decisions, two, think about whose advice you're listening to and, what, and what, what's actually being said. And on, on the, so if you distill that, that decision, there's one thing you would say on decision-making better, if people were to take away one thing on making better decisions, You've got clearly read these two books uh, that and articles that you've talked about. Is there one? What's your sort of one tip around doing making better decisions today for someone? It would be think about what you could improve in your decision making. Thanks for listening today, and hopefully you've taken away one thing to think about or try. Let me know in the comments if there's something you'd like us to explore in future episodes or just reach out on LinkedIn or podcast at district4.io. Let's keep learning and building great companies together. <laughs>